1: We are marching through the week here at Political Rewind and have a great show lined up for you today with a panel that is so perfectly suited for the topics we're going to discuss. You'd almost think we had it planned, but we didn't. We picked the panelists and then the subjects come to light. Greg Bluestein is here. He's here with us on Wednesdays. And, of course, he has... One of the political reporters, basically the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, you uh, read him in the paper virtually every day, and he files um, stories 24 hours a day on the political insider uh, blog at ajc.com how are you
2: I'm great my kids had their orientation oh. for their first day back at school oh. which is next week
1: oh how old are your kids to tell everybody
2: eight and five so oh. they are geared up for kindergarten and third grade oh
1: god and and um, of course you and your wife are both out of the house every day so it's not like either of you has to you know say oh my god thank goodness we have somewhere to send <laughs> the kids <laughs> yeah.
2: no but they're they're ready they've had a great summer so they're ready to get back to it at least we're ready for them to get back to it.
1: Um, if you're watching us on Facebook Live at the GPB news page on Facebook, you would notice that sitting next to Greg Bluestein is a man whose uh, boss Greg covers all the time. Cody Hall, press secretary to Governor Kemp, is back with us. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, we're uh, very glad to have you here, Cody. And, in fact, there are a couple stories today that we're going to be interested in hearing uh, some breaking news and how your boss is reacting to it. We'll get to one of them in just a minute. Wendy Davis is joining us again. Wendy is a city commissioner in uh, Rome, Georgia she is also a democratic national committee woman for the state of georgia and as you just told us before we went on the air you were a super delegate oh, super delegate
3: feeling so super today <laughs> yes thanks for having
1: me wendy when you, this is your second time on the show yes. and all i can say is when you come on you have a fan club that's unbelievable when you come on this show our facebook page blows up with people who are excited that you're here well
3: thanks i told you you need to just step outside of metro atlanta for a minute there are a lot of us out there who watch your show we have
1: plenty of people (laughs) from outside metro atlanta but thank you for the advice wendy i appreciate it amy stoggerwald is back with us a frequent panelist on the show we're glad to say she of course teaches political science at georgia state university How are you doing? You're getting set to send somebody back to school yourself, right?
0: Indeed I am. We don't start back because we're APS under a new schedule, so we go back on August 12th. But uh, we've been having soccer camp this week, and hopefully third grade will go well.
1: You know, for those who haven't heard, we've talked about it briefly on the show. It's not surprising you would have your kid in soccer camp because you are, you and your husband are... Big, big soccer fans, your season ticket holders at Atlanta United matches. You watch Premier League soccer, I think, UEFA. You're, it's your sport.
0: We rather like it. Now, <laughs> there's a bit of a chicken and egg. It's unclear if we like it as much as we do, in part because our son decided early on, like, uh, he was going to play soccer. And uh, he really likes soccer. So it's also one of the few things that we can get him to, you know, do without uh, any distractions. Uh, all
1: right. Yeah. Um, Let's go ahead and get to uh, big topics uh, today. Greg, a story that your colleague Ariel heartbroken this morning uh, is really important. It's the reason I said it was interesting that we have Cody Hall here. He cannot wait to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. The, um, so, we, we all know that Governor Kemp plans to, is in the process of working with a consultant, Deloitte, to come up with a proposal for waivers. For Medicaid and also for some kind of subsidies for people who buy their health certain people who buy their insurance on the on the affordable care exchanges Um, and that we believe that one of the things that the governor's office wants to do is have a essentially a partial expansion of Medicaid what does that mean a partial expansion
2: uh, and, and they have, and the governor said everything is on the table. He has not said whether or not this is exactly what he's pursuing, but he has also not ruled it out. But it would essentially allow expansion of Medicaid for people making up to 100% of the poverty level.
1: Is that basically fair to say at this point? Yes. Okay, good. Cody confirms that. And
2: not 138% of the poverty level, which is what a full. Uh, uh, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act would call for. And one of the reasons he definitely can't do that is because the actual law that gives him the power to pursue these waivers does not allow it to go all the way up to 138% of the poverty level. So that that's sort of off the table uh, by the bounds of the law. Uh, that being said, um, they haven't said whether or not they're going for the uh, that more limited Medicaid expansion, but it would still cover hundreds of thousands of additional Georgians. Um, and there was a hope uh, Seema Verma, the 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 federal Medicaid administrator um, said that this was also on the table, that that they had not ruled this out. There was a hope from some Georgia officials that the federal government could pick up a substantial part of that tab, up to 90 percent of that tab. Well, that looks a lot less likely now based on on reports out of Washington saying the Trump administration is closing its doors on that.
1: The state of Utah tried to pass a similar or was in the process of asking for a similar waiver and apparently, apparently, They were told, no, if you do a limited expansion, if you cover uh, up to people who are at 100% of the poverty level rather than 138%, we're not going to reimburse you at 90% as the Affordable Care Act allows. We're going to do it at like 67%. Is all this sound right, Cody, based on what you've learned today? Or maybe you've <laughs> known about this for a long time in your no, office. I,
4: and I think we're able to have this conversation about this issue because the governor cares about health care through two years on the campaign trail. We constantly heard from folks that either didn't have access to health care, the quality wasn't what they expected, or that um, the cost was too high. Um, So that's why the governor led on the Patients First Act. That's why the General Assembly passed over 20 health care bills this past session. And that's why the governor signed all of those. You know, in direct response to the things we've seen out of Utah, um, we still believe that all options are on the table for Georgia, um, and we're going to continue to work with the project team um, to develop innovative ways based on the data that we publicly released to let the public, the media, all interested parties know what the problems are in Georgia. Um, we're going to be working off that data to create innovative and Georgia-centric solutions to a lot of the healthcare care problems we have. But, is
2: this, but do, do these reports, does this change the calculus for the governor at all?
4: Right. So I, I can't get too far over my skis, but I can say that we believe that all options are still on the table. Um, I will say that, you know, I have told reporters until I'm blue in the face that we have had a very deliberative process. We passed the bill. We've assigned the project team. We've now released all the data. We are just now in the early stages of using that data to then try to craft the waiver p- proposals that the governor would then accept and then p- propose to CMS.
1: You're not, though, um you don't contradict the fact that the state of utah apparently got word from the medicaid uh, 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 administrator that their proposal wouldn't fly
4: sure uh, and, and and i'm i'm in the position of having to believe the media reports that i've read so. well of course you should believe the media <laughs> amy steigerwald
1: this is a subject area that you know pretty well If in fact it's true that uh, the government would only cover 67% rather than 90% of the cost of Medicaid, I don't know the exact math, but doesn't that argue that a full expansion would actually be uh, less expensive than a partial expansion?
0: It potentially does. I mean, that is sort of what sets this up as being sort of going against sort of where the arguments are, what we're trying to do. It would mean that expanding to 100 percent would perhaps result in less coverage Uh, for less people because of the fact that we're not going to see those same rates of reimbursement coming from the federal government. And so there are a number of arguments that potentially that would mean that it is either sort of similar in price or not much more expensive to expand, which is what we've heard um, so far out of Utah, actually, that the response from Utah has been that if they're going to turn that down, then uh, under their determination, Utah found at least that it would be similar in cost to just do the full expansion get reimbursed 90% if they're not going to be able to do the waiver in comparison to that 67%. You know, because the the other part of this, which I think is also important to discuss, is that um, part of the reason why this is happening is because the Trump administration is also simultaneously arguing that the entirety of the law should be struck down as unconstitutional. And so part of what they're trying to also address is that if they're to allow, for example, expansions like this, then it suggests support for the law and i think they are in a place where they are they don't want to contradict the arguments that they're making in court that the law uh both is unconstitutional but also difficult to actually um enforce in practice
1: yeah wendy for, let's, let's talk about the politics of this someone in a the morning news meeting here at gpb uh suggested and, and cody can weigh on in this after you do but suggested that you know brian kemp as a candidate had uh, talked a lot about not having a full expansion of Medicaid. And therefore, uh, if he were, for whatever reason, if, if the same scenario played out in Georgia that did in Utah, uh, he might find himself, uh, his supporters saying, what are you doing? I don't think that's the case. I, I do know that he didn't argue for a full expansion, but, but voters here have said in polling after polling that they're fine with a full expansion. So if for some reason the state of Georgia decided to just go ahead and do the 138 percent, I'm not sure I think that there's much of a downside for Cody's boss. What do you think?
3: Um, I, I think it would be a really smart thing to do to help, <laughs>
1: <laughs> particularly
3: to help the rural parts of our state and keep more hospitals open, but more importantly to get our neighbors the coverage that they uh, deserve and right now can't afford in any way. And um, I, I found it disheartening that um my my state senator chuck huffstetler is a republican at for the longest time was the only republican really willing to stand up and publicly say medicaid expansion is what we should do even though it has aca near it um but it was anathema on on that side of the aisle and and i think just at some point we've just got to stop and say let's stop killing each other over politics and have government working for the people, and I think that's what they may be finding they need to do. And it's
2: been real real interesting to see the huff caucus grow over the years, too. Renee Unnerman, who's now running for Congress, was one of the other Republicans who came out in support of some form of Medicaid expansion. So that 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 sort of argument has changed on the Republican side. But still, there are fiscal conservatives and, and, and Republicans like Governor Kemp who said it would be too costly in the long run. I don't think there'll be a full-scale revolt right. uh, among his base, Especially if there's a limited Medicaid expansion, um, but there would be some blow if if he were to reverse course and support a full expansion, there there would be some blowback. From well, us. And,
3: and I'm welcome. He can call it whatever he wants, right? <laughs> like you don't have to call it Medicaid expansion, dude. But but more more costly, and it, we're not looking at the big picture. The big picture is not covering people is more costly to the system, and it's more costly to our our neighbors' health.
4: Cody, jump in. Yeah, I would. You know. I can make news here today that as long as Brian Kemp is governor, we are not going to do a full Medicaid expansion up gotcha. to 138 percent of the federal poverty gotcha. level. Got you.
1: And and the reason for it, that is that you worry that as Nathan Deal did, right. that eventually the feds aren't going to cover the cost, and the state's going to get stuck with the bill. Right. That and a whole
4: laundry list of things. But okay. I, I do want. I know it's incredibly tough for when we talk about our waiver proposal, um, in the Patients First Act to. It's very easy to only focus on the 1115 Medicaid side, but you have to remember that on the 1332 side, which is a waiver to the Affordable Care Act, you know, that is one thing that whenever you go out and and you talk to Georgians about health care, when they're talking about it, they say my premium is way too high and I would have to pay way too much before my insurance kicks in. So if there are ways that the state can work with the federal government to assist Georgians in lowering the premiums on the private sector side, it does two things. Number one, it allows, you know, more folks to be able to afford private insurance that maybe are currently uninsured. But it also frees up, um, it brings the entire cost across the board down for everyone. So that's one of the things, along with the 1115 side, we have to also pay attention to the 1332
1: side. I know that Deloitte is working with your people right now to figure out what the proposals actually ought to be. That you you have yeah. till the end of the year, right, to yeah. submit your waiver proposals to uh, the administration. But in general, help our listeners understand what your thinking is. The, sure. the governor's thinking is about the a subsidy to people who buy on the exchange. It's based on the income of the individual. It's, what are the
4: other considerations? You know, I think going into this conversation, the three main considerations are how we lower costs, how we increase access to those that are currently uninsured, and then how do we improve the quality of health outcomes across the board. So when you're looking at the well 1332 side, one of the things that folks talk about a lot is that, and, and based on the data set that we publicized, that a lot of the folks that are uninsured, over half are actually employed. So how do we work with small businesses um, or employers that don't currently offer insurance to incentivize that behavior so that folks that are uninsured but have a job and are in the labor force how do we ensure that they actually have access to health care
1: Yeah Amy um, when the, when the governor argues as his predecessor Governor Deal did that they don't and Republicans have for a while now we don't want to get stuck down the road with paying out of state funds for a Medicaid expansion. It's interesting. You mentioned the lawsuit that's working its way. It's in, in a New Orleans court, federal court, appeals court has now got that case, and they're weighing what to do about it. In fact, if they were to overturn Obamacare, wouldn't that put the states in exactly the position that Republicans are a, afraid of? They've the states that have expanded Medicaid are now not going to get the the money back, or Would that somehow be protected? We I don't really know the answer to that, and you may not either.
0: Well, currently under the lawsuit that is taking place, the argument is that no pieces of it are severable, meaning you can't strike down one portion of it and have other parts stand. So that would mean, in effect, that the entirety of the law is gone if it was to be struck down as unconstitutional, and that would mean that anything that changed right post the Affordable. Care Act being passed, would revert back to what it had been prior to its passage. And so, yes, that would mean that at that point, under law, uh, Medicaid would only be covering, it would not cover then that portion between the 100 uh, federal poverty level up to the 138. Now, of course, the other side of this, though, is that Congress, if it wanted to, could, of course, just simply pass a new law that does the things that it wants to.
1: Because it's been so easy for Congress to pass a health care law or
0: any other law. So it's very possible that, you know, that's not going to happen. But I mean, it is possible.
1: It does feel, Wendy, talk to you as a Democrat now, of course, it does feel like for ever since the ACA passed, Republicans have put themselves in such an in a series of awkward positions on an issue that the American people overwhelmingly say they want health care i mean we know the 2018 election in many ways went more for democrats and republicans because democrats ran on things like pre-existing conditions it, it just feels like uh, republicans tie themselves up in knots over an issue that is contrary to the will of many people out there
3: yeah I, again it, it it's baffling and, and i go back to tennessee was i mean um kentucky was a great example right the 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 politics, the chatter was ACA was evil, government overreach, blah blah blah. But they loved Kentucky Connect, which was their version of Obamacare, right? So I mean, the un, the the politics of it has made all of this just much more complicated than it needs to be.
2: And the other legal wrinkle to all this is that conservatives in Georgia and elsewhere are, are, are t- tend to be fans of some sort of work requirement mm. for people who, who get these th- th- some sort of Medicaid expansion. But in other states these work requirements have been struck down by federal judges, and so the the, the fate of that and, and whether or not Governor Kemp pursues that as part of a waiver, again, he hasn't said that he will, <laughs> but he also hasn't ruled that out, so we don't really know, um, is also up in the air, but there are a, there are many conservative lawmakers
1: who want him to do just that. Cody, I want to give you the last word on this before I move yeah. on.
4: A record number of Georgians voted for Brian Kemp, one of the main reasons to do something on health care, and that's what the governor's committed to doing. Now we're not waiting to the resolution of a lawsuit we're not waiting on anything else we're doing what we believe is the best well, for Georgia to be able to put patients first
1: so hmm. i you know it's interesting you say that i do you base that um uh, statement that he won overwhelmingly uh, he didn't win overwhelmingly right. it was a fairly right. close election but sure. what you said sure. was You know, he won largely on the basis of his position on health care. That's interesting to me
4: because I never
1: would have put it in
4: that context. (laughs) I would have said I believe that a record number of Georgians voted for Brian Kemp for a number of reasons. And if you look at any polling, one of their top priorities is health care. So that's a mandate that we've got to do something. And and this is why you've seen the commitment from. Well, from the governor and the General Assembly to do just that.
1: All right. Before we leave this again, Amy, give us your final thoughts on where we stand right now.
0: Um, I think that the governor's office is having to figure out ways in which to deal with the conflicting messages coming from the White House. The White House originally said, bring us all of your waivers. We like them. We want them in all of these different ways. We like the idea of work requirements. We like the ways of potentially. And now all of a sudden the response is changing and it's not entirely clear. What's also, I think, difficult is that some of the messages seem to be coming from the White House while the Center for Medicaid Services is also being kind of quiet and so it's really unclear uh, sort of what the process is there. I think the other part, at least in the state, to deal with, and as sort of Cody mentioned, is the report that came out from Deloitte with one of the biggest things being that a uh, the sort of highest levels of uninsured populations are a lot of the rural counties where they're really struggling. We've had hospitals closing And the other part was the exceptionally high percentage of people who are employed, but also lacking health care.
2: And after that report came out from uh, talking with lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, that was one of the main themes was doing something to give incentives to those companies. Um, to, to provide health care coverage for yep. their workers.
1: Yep. All right. Uh, it's a fascinating subject. We're going to watch it play out. It'll be interesting to see, uh, Cody, w- w- well, not that we may ever know, because this isn't being done in, a, in, in public at this point, uh, whether these reports out of Utah and what, what the, the uh, Medi- Medicare uh, administrators done with them has some influence on how your consulting firm, Deloitte, and your office looks at how you tweak the proposals you're going to put forward so we'll look forward to seeing
4: that that's up to a, a group of people that is a whole lot smarter than i am bill so. uh,
1: well and,
3: uh, just last thing i just ahead, i just want people to ask you know we're we're talking about dollars and, and dollars matter and budgets matter but i want you to look at those numbers that came out in that report and all of those people who are our neighbors in this state who have real high urgent stress about Daily life and health. See, this and is.
1: Go ahead, finish No, and then and, then,
3: and I, I just want those humans to be a part of that calculus. This
1: is what I love about having all of you to come in here on days, on different days of the week. How many places do you, Wendy Davis, Democrat, get to ask cody hall (laughs) press uh, representative for the governor to get your message to him directly
3: this first opportunity i feel and she's
4: been very kind about it which i appreciate that
1: (laughs) you're listening to political rewind let's take a break and come right back you know selling a car can be a hassle but donating it is a whole different story let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it
4: into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org cars. And
1: thanks.
3: Would it surprise you to know that while you're sleeping, your smartphone is sharing your personal data with companies you've never heard of? On the next Fresh Air, Jeffrey Fowler talks about some of the ways our phones, computers, and smart speakers harvest and use information about us. Fowler writes a consumer-oriented technology column for The Washington Post. Join us.
1: Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Greg Bluestein, let's talk a little bit about the Georgia U.S. Senate race uh, through the filter of an article that you uh, uh, published the other day in the AJC. You know, we we know the Democratic field for Senate is going to start expanding. We, we imagine Teresa Tomlinson the first to jump in after Stacey Abrams said she wasn't going to make the race. Stacey uh, Teresa Tomlinson waiting, <laughs> you know, already wearing her tracksuit, waiting at the start line and she, for the guns. Said the
2: <laughs> Only if so. Right.
1: right. So she's in there. Uh, we now know that Sarah Riggs Amico, who ran for lieutenant governor, has got an exploratory committee. She'll jump in. We think others, maybe what, John Ossoff, Ted, Terry Ted Terry's in, in, the mayor of Ossoff, Clarkson. My- so missing from this equation, after a 2018 race in which the Democratic ticket was led by Stacey Abrams and mobilized in an exciting way... Black voters, African American voters. There's no African American candidate on the horizon in it, this race,
2: and it's certainly not for lack of lack of candidates, especially starting with Stacey Abrams, um, who who passed on a race, but also uh, numerous um, high-profile uh, African American leaders, lawmakers, clergy members, you name it, who have, have some of who very publicly ruminated about a run, um, but are either non-committal or or telling folks behind the scenes they're not going to run. Um, everyone I talked to, either privately or, or who went on the record, um, essentially said, look, it's it's early. This field will grow beyond even the names that we just mentioned. There still could be. Well, Michael Thurman, a frequent guest of the show, the Cabs. He'll be here Friday. He'll be here Friday. He says
1: maybe that maybe we look... can talk him into running. <laughs> he says
2: that <laughs> look, in six months, you know, a couple months before the primary, you could still have a a, a prominent black leader get in and then instantly become the front runner.
1: Wendy, you're, you're. What do you think about this? How how important would it be, given what Stacey Abrams accomplished uh, in 2018? to have an African-American running in this. So
3: so I think there was a lot that was inspirational about her race that was related to her being a black woman and could have been the first African-American governor of Georgia. But the African-American voters have been inspired by candidates before who weren't African-American. Right. I think that part of what's keeping African-American candidates out isn't. A racial component is what's keeping a lot of, you know, white candidates out too. The prospect of how much money you have to raise for a statewide race of the stature of a U.S. Senate race—that's daunting, uh, and, and it's and it's not something I, I love um, uh, CEO Thurman, but. I don't think you get in next April and can, boom, raise that kind of money How for a primary. How much money? Uh,
2: well, a uh, quick note on that, Theresa Tomlinson says $22 million. Yep, yep. And, that's, and that might right. just be a start.
1: Yeah, I mean, right, right. Because David Perdue will have unlimited resources once they, we get to the general election, won't he?
2: he? He's very close, not just with the Trump and, White House, but also uh, the Governor Kemp and the Republican establishment here now.
3: Well, and I, I do expect the, the field to expand, and I expect there will be Uh, A number of candidates, um, and particularly I think there will be candidates of color. Um, But regardless, the election next November, that's not the only high-profile race that's going to be on the ballot. There's going to be a lot that will motivate voters of every stripe and all across the state. Um, That little thing called the presidential campaign, too. (laughs) And Georgia will be a battleground. That's not just us talking. Georgia will be a battleground both in the presidential primary, you can count on it, and in November. And that's what we're working hard every chance to make sure those national folks don't look past us.
4: I think it starts with, number one, that David Perdue is a very good senator. He's done a very good job for the people of Georgia, and people um, reward folks that go to Washington to stand up for Georgia, and he's done that. I think it's kind of the the flip side of how you introduced this bill. Um, Well, Stacey Abrams raised over $5 million more than our campaign did. She was the national media darling. She had unlimited amount of money in the state party. She had unlimited amount of money, millions coming in from outside the state into outside groups. And she, and she didn't win. She lost. So if you're a, a Democrat right now looking at a, a tough incumbent and you've got to probably raise more than Abrams did to get over that hump and you've got to deal with a national media atmosphere that's a really tough calculation to make i'll
1: let I, you I, answer i, it. I, uh, well, I you don't doubt think... that david purdue is gonna be a tough guy to beat I, I, you?
3: an incumbent u.s senator is tough right, to beat right if, if you walked down broad street in rome georgia and said who's david purdue i don't know how many people would say our yeah. u.s senator okay. i mean i just don't
1: yeah um amy let me ask you a, a, a question on a different on a, high, a higher level on another <laughs> level when i even ask the question Without an African-American in the U.S. Senate race, am I playing right into this notion that it, of identity politics dominating a lot of the Democratic thinking these days? In other words, is it an inappropriate question to even ask?
0: I think I would flip it around and say that one of the things that we do when we discuss a lot of these topics is that we presume that there is not also identity in being white or in being male Mm. and things like that. I think what it more is a recognition of um, the demographics of the state are such that. Uh, the numbers of representatives of color that we have doesn't match up to the demographics of the state. And we're definitely hitting a point where we're going to see that they certainly don't match up on a gender frame. They definitely don't match up on um, a race frame. And I think the other side of it maybe is that we are, we're changing to a point where perhaps the way to look at it is that it does seem a little bit surprising in the sense that we do have this cadre of uh, now elected representatives who are Are kind of across who are across the state who are people of color and who are black and are brown and that it's maybe a better way to look at it is to say that that those options do exist and that we need to sort of recognize that who is running for office and who we expect to be running for office is wildly different than even ten years ago I mean in all honesty that question would never have been asked ten years ago and we wouldn't have even expected that somebody could much less win. It's funny
2: that you say that because um, one one of Stacey Abrams' chief deputies tweeted that exact same out thing out which just say just a few years ago the AJC and, and not just the AJC but you know any national newspaper or regional newspaper Uh, would probably not be asking the question, where are the African-American candidates? Mm -hmm. But last year's vote showed, well, reminded folks, especially in the Democratic primary, but also in the general election, just the strength of the black electorate and the Democratic electorate. Um, Minority turnout soared, especially in the primary compared to 2014, um, after Stacey Abrams uh, successfully energized uh, a, a group of voters that usually skip the midterms. Um, and I'll say on the on the on the Republican side, Governor Kemp managed to do the same thing among Republican voters who also usually skip midterms. They targeted specifically yep. targeted Donald Trump voters who don't vote in in state elections.
3: We have a, a really talented cadre of um, elected officials. You usually think of a U.S. Senate race not necessarily being uh, people who have been mayor running for U.S. Senate, although we have right? two, the yeah. two in, uh, I'm proud to say are mayors, and I think mayors get things done and, uh, and know a lot about governing, right? Uh, I'd love to talk about that when we talk about the presidential race. We'll get uh, but, but usually a lot of times you think members of Congress and governors are the one to, to step up and run for U.S. Senate in sort of the traditional way. But our, our members of Congress who are African-American, why on earth would they step out and have to raise that kind of money on... A chance. I mean, it's still, uh, you know, forty-nine, fifty-one. Either, either way state if you're lucky. Right. If you're doing it right. And um, and why would you take that risk when you're governing and leading where you are?
0: Well, and on a sort of different high level, to be totally provocative, I will say that I think one of the things that the Republican Party also needs to address is why don't they either in Georgia or nationally have more candidates that are running that are either black and brown or um, are women? I mean, one of the things that is most uh, concerning, I would say, on the Republican side is that in the last uh, week or sorry, two weeks, there have been five different Republican uh, members of the House who have said that they're not going to run for reelection, two of those for women, and, and there's only currently 12 Republican women serving in Congress, and, and that's
1: a problem. Cody, you get that that's a problem. I mean, we have on this show we have had two women who are both deeply interested in that very subject. On the Democratic side, Melita Easters, the founder of the Georgia Win List, who has recruited countless Democratic pro-choice women to run for offices in Georgia. And on the other side, Julianne Thompson, who although is not in an official sure. role, has said on the show and any number of occasions... We just I go out and look for women to run on the Republican side,
4: well, and, and
0: Loretta canna- and Jackie Cushman, too, right, talk about
1: that's that. A lot.
4: Exactly right. Absolutely, and I think that's why Governor Kemp has made it a priority to appoint. I mean, we've appointed the first Latino elected official statewide, we've appointed the first. Well, female African-American DA in Cobb County. We've appointed the first African-American female judge on the Gwinnett Superior Court. We've appointed the first African-American female judge on the Stone Mountain Judicial Circuit. The governor is taking diversity well, very seriously, and he's put his money where his mouth is.
1: So who goes out for the Republican Party while your governor, you say, is expanding the diversity of his administration and recruits women to run in the 2020 cycle, We, you know?
4: I think it's incumbent on all of us, and I think the, the governor has made a great start, um, and we need to continue to do more.
2: It, it is a recruitment issue. We had a record number of of women. Uh, it's, it's 2017 special election was a glimpse of it because mm-hmm. women went went won just about every uh, special election they were involved in in the metro Atlanta area, uh, and then 2018 was a big record numbers of women ran and won and as you said most of them were democrats
1: all right before we leave the whole subject of the u.s senate race particularly the democratic primary wendy what's your expectation we i've I listed you've got ted terry Teresa tomlinson probably sarah riggs Miko. what's your expectation and are democrats coming to you given your position and saying i'm thinking about making this race what do you think about it is, is there going to be a larger field eventually?
3: Uh, I, th- I think there may be. But again, I think those obstacles we've already discussed okay. are obstacles for everyone, no matter you know, what part of the state they're from. Uh, it, it takes a, a special person to put yourself out there like that. A statewide race in Georgia with 159 counties and having to raise the millions and millions that you're going to have to do is, is tough. Uh, I'm working really hard uh, to recruit at other levels, too. Right. Um, from city races all the way up to congressional races. And we are working very uh, intentionally to make sure we're recruiting um, candidates of color and particularly having a lot of response from women who have never even thought of it before.
2: Let me ask it this way. Are you content with the field? The field is just two candidates, Mayors Tomlinson and Terry. Would you be content with the field or do you hope it grows?
3: Um, I I expect it to grow. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the candidates we have so far. And uh, if the candidates I've heard thinking about it are also, you know, thoughtful, smart people. And that's what I look for in a candidate, people who are connected to their community and, uh, and have a vision for moving our state forward.
1: All right. Uh, let me change subjects. We're going to take a break in a minute. We'll just address this briefly because I, it's really—I don't think—a a long discussion we can have about it right now. But, but, Greg, um, your colleague Maya Prabhu in the in, in wrote in the paper the other day, uh, statistics data that show that abortions in the state over the last two decades are down like twenty percent or more. The experts she talked to primarily say that it, uh, access to contraception has been uh, one of the major reasons for that. But what I thought was most interesting when I read the article was that doesn't satisfy anybody on either side of this issue. Surprise! The, the Kemp folks who were, Brian Kemp, of course, signed 481. They don't want any abortions in this state because they believe that life, even at conception, is sacred, all that. And, of course, the pro-choice folks... Uh you know, they don't have a lot to celebrate there either. I'm not sure what to make of what that statistic tells us.
4: Yeah,
2: I mean one of the things it tells us is that Georgia is kind of falling in line with the national trend. Um and that that I mean that mirrors the sort of national trend line of of states that have similar abortion laws. Um but of course um with this current legislation, with the legal battle, um, all that can be kind of thrown up in the air.
1: Yeah, Amy, the the one thing that I did think about is that there are conservatives out there who don't think outlawing abortion is enough. They also look at contraception and have serious concerns in the evangelical community, particularly. I think I'm right to say that. Uh, If there's an effort to in any way curtail contraception, funding for organ. We already know Planned Parenthood has lost federal funding and one of their jobs is to provide contraception uh, for women. That seems to me to be a real hot button issue moving forward.
0: Most decidedly, and I think some of the issue is that particularly when we start to talk about contraception is that contraception is not simply about sex. It's also about healthcare um and keeping that in mind that there are you know many many women use contraception and particularly birth control pills for reasons that have nothing to do with preventing pregnancy um, and things like that and for uh, real health issues that have to be addressed and so it gets us into this thing because I think that one of the issues and that we're starting to see more is this argument about sort of um, reproductive justice and the idea of how it all comes together and sort of framing um, the question and kind of recognizing that we talk about it as this kind of separate distinct thing but it really is also a question about health care and going back to what we were yeah. talking about with Medicaid expansion and all of that, that we have to then have real discussions of what do we do with the woman who comes in and it is either that there is an abortion that she perhaps doesn't even want to have, but she can either have an abortion or she can die. And that is a real question.
1: Cody, I assume uh, you would not take issue with my contention that even though there's been a twenty percent drop in the uh, number of abortions in Georgia over two decades, that's not the point from your side of the equation.
4: I think the report is something that we should all celebrate. Um, it was a It was a thing that I was happy to see. Um, so I think it was a good thing.
3: So I was going to disagree too i'm I'm celebrating yeah uh, because what folks on the pro-choice side want, is women to have reproductive health options that are their decision and the the one thing i think we can all agree on fewer unplanned pregnancies will lead to fewer abortions all
1: right thank you i really appreciate you're all weighing in on it because as i read the article i was i was interested in hearing what people's reactions were uh we did have a democratic presidential debate last night you probably know that all of you here Uh, we're going to talk about it after we take our final break of the show thanks guys hi i'm ross sorrell gpb's reporter here in atlanta but i cover more than the state's largest city i tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of georgia are facing and i report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro atlanta counties
0: we believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for
4: stick with us to hear these stories and
1: more gpb news stand with the facts Linguist
0: Gretchen McCulloch's new book breaks down the rules of Internet language. Take LOL. McCulloch says now LOL doesn't always mean laughter. If I say, I hate you, lol, now I'm joking, so it's fine. I'm not laughing out loud while I hate you. I'm undermining my message and saying, I hate you, but I'm not serious about it. The book Because Internet and analysis of the second Democratic presidential debate this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: 4 till 7 today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back. Uh, Tom Faust, who is uh, sitting in there running the show uh, in our control room, would probably be disappointed if I didn't remind you all that on Monday, August 12th, we're going to be out in Augusta, Georgia. We're going to do our show in front of a live audience at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts. And we'd love to have you with us. As I said the other day, this will be our first visit to Augusta, and we're looking forward to getting out there. So go to the Political Rewind website, politicalrewind.org. You'll find a link where you can sign up for your free tickets for the event, and you can come out and uh, get a chance to see the show. We hope you'll join us that night, um, and uh, we should have fun. it would be fun to be out there. By the way, J- Jesse Neiswanger, who is our engineer. Jesse, did you write the theme music for today's show, too? I always like giving you a little credit I didn't know until recently that our engineer is also a composer. Wow. Very impressive. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. cool. <laughs> um, all right. So last night we had the first of the two CNN debates. And I, I think everybody agrees that one of the things that was most interesting uh, about it in many ways, Greg, was that we really got to see the, uh, the split mm-hmm. between the um, moderates in the party And the more progressive elements, because we had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the stage, uh, along with people uh, like Pete Buttigieg, who was a little bit more moderate. Um, uh, So it was an interesting contrast. Yeah,
2: but but the more moderate candidates on the stage were like Delaney... And and Governor Bullock from from Montana. Yeah. And you could see Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders not only teaming up here and there, but also especially Senator Warren using Delaney as sort of a stand in for Joe Biden. That to me was really interesting because there was no direct attacks on, on Joe Biden that we think that you know be likely to come earlier later in the year or early next year. Instead, um, Delaney was the favorite punching bag and, yeah. and really struggled up there.
1: Uh, you thought he struggled up me better. I did yeah I mm-hmm. thought he got pretty aggressive I'm looking forward to hearing this from Wendy in a 2nd let's play a little compilation of sound you're gonna hear this split between the progressives uh, Elizabeth Warren Bernie Sanders and John Delaney who was their chief prosecutor last night you're gonna hear first from Delaney then a quick Bernie Sanders then Elizabeth Warren and then Bernie Sanders again here we go
2: folks we have a choice we can go down the road that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren want to take us with, his, with bad policies like Medicare for all, free everything, and impossible promises that'll turn off independent voters
1: and get Trump reelected. I get a little bit tired of Democrats afraid of big ideas.
0: I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do
1: and shouldn't fight for. <laughs> What do you say to Congressman Delaney? You're wrong, <laughs> <laughs> Wendy. What do you think about this split between the moderates and the progressives? So it, it's
3: not surprising. It's it's what our party is is dealing with right now, and and there's a you know a question on everyone's you know heart and mind is do you ramp up the left and get them super excited at the potential you know downside of alienating? Uh, a more conservative members of the electorate, not just our party? Or do you try to say a similar value, but a policy that's not as, quote-unquote, frightening?
1: How do you think Georgia Democrats are going to weigh in on this year? Well,
3: I mean, it's the same battle we had um, with Abrams, right? Well, like, Abrams it, and Evan. It, I'm
1: glad to hear you say that. It, I thought that it, myself. It, it, was
3: the, it's, the, it's the very same, and it's, and it's what... We're fighting in our party, but the the good part to me is we're fighting it from a place of civility, right? We're fighting it from a place of talking about policies and talking about ideas, but more importantly, talking about what is the path to help move, help, I mean, to quote one of the candidates, help us thrive, right, uh, and, and thinking about the people, and I think... um Mayor Pete said it really well, talking about you know bringing it back to what is going to help our neighbors.
1: I thought Pete Buttigieg had a great soundbite, right, Greg? He said, uh, "You know, uh, we're going to be called uh, socialists, <laughs> yeah. no whether, matter what." No matter what, essentially. He said whether
2: Democrats pursue a far left agenda or a conservative agenda, they'll still be branded as socialists.
4: Which Cody? Maybe <laughs> Cody's to already warming right, up, right? right. So, He's, admittedly, I did not watch the debate last night. My wife had our TV on the, well, finale of. The bachelorette. You know um, what? My house so, had the same problem. I had to go into a different but I did room. But <laughs> I did listen to some this morning, um, and, you know, I think th- the winners of that debate were the Republicans on the ballot next year, along with President Trump. And the losers are the, the Georgia Democrats, because I can tell you every single Republican consultant that's running a race in Georgia and across the country is going to go on and get— the Looney Tunes stuff that some of these candidates are talking about, chop it up and compare it to the folks that are running here in Georgia. Because when you're talking about taking away private health health insurance from 180 million Americans, when you're talking about giving free health care and free college education to those here illegally, and then decriminalizing crossing the border. I mean, it, it, it's stuff that even Ob- and President Obama and members of his cabinet we're not comfortable with, and now it's, it's mainstream in the Democratic Wendy, Party. Wendy,
1: I, I mean, you do, you do hear some Democrats arguing exactly what Cody just argued.
3: Yes, which is why candidates last night were saying that other people on the stage were doing Republican talking points, right? Like, I mean, it, it is a question. We have to figure out how to navigate it. It's a incrementalist versus burn it all down, and, uh, and I just think that we've got to have time and we're going to work Where are it.
1: you on all that?
3: I, I'm, you know, I've been called a corporatist, which I don't, which I think is funny that <laughs> hey, one would, would call me a, a, a corporatist. <laughs> but, but I've always been somebody who was kind of in the middle, right? I mean, my values are very progressive, but I don't, I don't know that you have to burn it all down.
1: Amy, oh. it, it is true, of course. That when you think back to the Georgia primary for governor and you had Stacey evans running that that sort of yellow dog democrat strategy Mm -hmm. trying to appeal to people who used to be conservative democrats but are now republicans and stacy abrams who you know people like cody are not thrilled about her but you've got to give her credit she said no i'm going to go for progressive ideas i'm going to win my the votes that i get because of my progressive ideas, and it's time for Georgia to understand that's important. So they did have a similar kind of battle, and Abrams clobbered uh, Stacy Evans as a result.
0: Um, she did, and I think one of the things that I was... There were two things I was really struck by on the debate. The first one was <laughs> the degree to which it seemed to me that the moderators wanted there to be these fights. And so one of the reasons why Delaney became the punching bag is because the moderators kept setting him up to be. And they really, they before it started, they were like, oh, it'll be Warren versus Bernie. And then when Bernie and Warren said we're not going to do that, they were like, oh, we got to come up with some other people for there to be a fight. And so there did seem to be, yeah, a lot of levels in which, because the irony is that every single person on that stage said that there should, in fact, be some way of covering everyone for healthcare and some version of sort of you know universal healthcare. They just all use different words, so that was kind of striking. Um, the second thing that I was really struck by was that in many ways the people who are leading in the polls are. Those who have the more, who you know, have the more leftist socialist ideas, I guess. Um, if we're going to put it in that way, right? Well, so wait, leave, wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait. Well, no, I was going to say
0: if we, if we leave aside, so I'm going to leave aside Biden for a second. But oh, if those okay. that Go were ahead. on people were on the, were stage on this, last the people that were on right. the stage last That's night, right. it's
1: Elizabeth Warren, right? Are yeah. Elizabeth
0: Warren, Bernie Sanders? They are, you know, strongly in there. Uh, also in head-to-head matchups, right against Trump, they win, right within them consistently, and we see that also with. Uh, The ones I put in there. And the other part of it is, is those two. Right. For a lot of people, Biden is the first choice, especially on sort of electability. But when then you then say to people, if you're not worried about electability and you go to your second choice, who is it? it's then Sanders and Warren, and their numbers really kind of drive up there. And so I think that they're also... In the also,
1: Democratic Party.
0: In the Democratic yeah. Party. But I think it also <laughs> is important, right, where they are But I guess what I'm trying to say is that what I think is interesting is how we're setting it up right now and that in many ways, they tried to set it up as this cleavage. I'm not sure the cleavage is as strong as they tried to put it. And I think that CNN really, really wanted there to be some knockdown, yeah. down well, drag-out fight. And it kind of drove me nuts, honestly. I just wanted them to actually be able to discuss <laughs> things.
3: Well, and I I, I want to just challenge your characterization a little bit. No, I sure. don't think I don't think any of us are saying that we want to go back to yellow dog, Democrat, conservative Democrat among those candidates. No, I no, think no. It,
1: I'm saying that I, wasn't winning of a winning well, but, but, position.
3: But still, the, the question is, do you go as far as you can and think that uh, far energy right. versus still being Progressive, but an, in an incremental way rather than a burn it all now, down and, and, and he, way, like Yeah, Klobuchar and Bullock
1: Klobuchar would, agree, yeah, with Bullock and would Bullock. agree with you. You wow. know,
3: we're trying to call them conservative, and they're very progressive folks. Joe Biden's a progressive guy, and that, right? When did they become conservative? And that's
2: what this debate really showcased was the evolution versus revolution. That, that even even the more, let's say, moderate candidates on those stages said we're still not. You know, we're still not basically Republicans and Democrats. clothing. we're still we're still progressive. We just don't want to uh, you know, start the revolution. And then you had you heard we heard Senator Warren's quote saying, "Why are we here if we don't have big
1: ideas?" Yeah, Cody. Uh, so you're grinning.
4: Yes. I mean, Democrats are treading a very fine line. I mean, when you're talking about some of the union workers in the Rust Belt that have private health insurance to their union and and and. And, and one of your main pushes on health care is to take away private insurance, or or to give it to those he- that are here illegally. I mean, it's exactly you really don't even have to do that much editing and and pasting just to put it in a re- Republican TV ad for next year.
0: Cody, can I ask? Because sure. I mean, and I actually mean this in a serious way, yeah. like. Would it actually matter what any of the candidates up there had said such that they're not sure. going to, as Pete G-G-G said, be called socialist? anyways. Yes, it does, I mean, cause that Because that was Trump's response, you know, right afterwards. Sure. I mean So,
4: well, I would say that the messaging only works if there's truth that you're trying to get at. And look, wait,
3: I wish that was true.
4: <laughs> I mean, it is. Okay. It, it, I would say that our messaging against Stacey Abrams worked because she was a very far left. Well, Democrat. And it worked because she believed the things that we were saying that she believed. Now, if Democrats want to take a step back and look at maybe protecting Obamacare or, or other things that are still liberal but aren't almost a socialist kind of thing or, or, or full socialist, I think that would help them in the long
1: run. Uh, we're completely out of time, but I'm going to give you 10, 15 seconds to respond to what you just heard Cody Hall say, Wendy.
3: Um. I- Obviously, he and I see it differently and particularly about about whether the truth has anything to do with uh, what the Republicans talk about. The, the, the president is is the picture of that Mexico paying for the wall, whatever.
1: OK, um, that's Wendy Davis uh, from Rome, Georgia. Uh, Amy Steigerwald from Georgia State University. Cody Hall from the uh, governor's office and Greg Bluestein. Thank you all so much for being here for a really, really interesting conversation today uh, as we leave you. I have to do this. Anybody who listens to our show regularly knows I'm a great lover of of theater. Uh, Hell Prince died Mm. today, 91 years old, one of the most important forces in the history of theater. Everything from uh, Cabaret, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, and so many other shows with Stephen Sondheim. Uh, He's an enormous loss, but he will be remembered as one of the great, great figures in American theater. That's it. We'll be back on Friday at 2. See you then. We'll